0: Welcome to American Narratives, I'm Mary And I'm
1: Joe Frotcham, and today we have Richard Thomas with us in studio. Good morning, Richard, good morning. It's terrific having you. Hey, we're going to hear from Richard here in a sec, but just to give a little bit of a preamble. Uh, Richard comes to us originally from Jamaica, he came to the United States to go to college, Benedict College, where he got a bachelor's degree in physics and was also captain of the soccer team. Pretty impressive. Very quickly thereafter, he went to the Ohio State University for his MBA in strategy and finance, and then quickly started a career at some of the top kind of pedigree consulting firms in in the world, really, with BCG and then McKinsey. And then he pivoted to inside roles, where he had progressively larger executive roles with uh, Dean Foods and Borden over the next decade or so. Uh, And in the process actually started a concept called the Island Spot, a Jamaican kitchen and bar. We're going to learn a little bit more about that. And now is in his next where he's really uh, in the hospitality industry in a big way with his own kind of concepts and brands and doing some very interesting things. And we'll get to that here in a few minutes. But welcome, Richard. It's great having you.
0: Welcome, Richard. I'm glad you're here with us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, we're going to get started with the beginning, right? All of us have a story to tell. Um, We all have an upbringing. So let's start there. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where did you grow up, and what were some milestones as you you were a kid?
2: I'm from a town called Spanish Town, Jamaica. I'm the youngest of four. And in Jamaica, what we call, um, that is the wash belly. Um, So my mother had four kids. Um, My oldest brother was 10 years older. My Second was eight years old, and my sister was three years older and there's me. I um, enjoyed growing up there. We had a small uh, shop in Jamaica that we grew up in. I started off owning and running that shop. My mother brought me in the shop at, like, five because I was really good at math, and I started to calculate everything for the, the customers. And then from there, we moved to eventually I was taking most of the lead up. Doing everything when I was 13, until I left to come to America at 18. I um, enjoyed school. Mm-hmm. I was good at math. Um, enjoyed some of the sciences, some not so well. Um, <laughs> my dad left when I was nine. Didn't really see him again until I was 28. Um, my uncle helped to raise me, and you know I really enjoyed my my childhood with my brothers, sisters, and cousins that were around me. Mm-hmm. And um, did well or decently well in sports. So by the time I left, I actually played at the Jamaican National Volleyball team as well. Wow. Were impressive. you an outside
1: hitter, back line, front line? Where'd you, where were you on the volleyball
2: team? I was an outside hitter. I was a off hitter. So I actually could spike with both hands. Mm-hmm. I was the second best defender, second best setter. So I was pretty much an all-runner.
1: That's impressive. That's a tough sport too. It is. Um,
2: It's funny because my last tournament before I came to America, I played against America in the North Seca Regional tournaments, It's like the last level before I get to the Olympics. And I found it was short so i always thought i was you know i'm 6-1 and i had a really <laughs> high vertical but when you play against seven footers you realize there's there are limits to this there's <laughs> levels <to this. laughs> so i could spike on anybody in the caribbean from the front court against america i have to spike from the back court because their armpits are over the net
1: yeah no i i played a little soccer years ago and and you're right i'm 6-1 like you and all of a sudden there's six six foot got people on the other side who could block very easily, almost too easily, without jumping much, and that well, seemed a little unfair.
0: Well, I'm a little jealous because that's all wishful thinking at five feet tall. There's only a certain <laughs> sports <laughs> I could play.
1: <laughs> it's true. All right, so uh, what brought you here? Okay, so you, Jamaica, great, great existence. Obviously, a couple of curveballs along the way from a family standpoint, but you found you had outlets in sports, math. Um, was a pretty good experience, good existence. What prompted you to come to the United States and What happened after you got here?
2: So I look at my life as fundamentally led by grace. Um, Most of the major changes I've had, um, I could clearly see, you know, God's hands in it. So uh, my sister um, lived in America. She, you know, at 14, we got her green card. Um, She decided to finish high school in America. I finished high school in Jamaica. And um, she was starting to study for the SATs. And I started like, you know, I might as well practice as well and try to help her out and um, took the SATs, didn't think anything of it because it's, it doesn't matter in Jamaica where you're going. So I um, went through high school. Um, we had two years of optional study called um, Six states. So what it is is we took the advanced level exams. So you start to you work at a ton of courses, and it narrowed down to three or four in that two-year intensive. And then our university is only three years mm-hmm. in Jamaica. So I did it two years, and um, in my last year, I was the deputy head boy of my um, high school, St. Jago High School. And we had a recruiter came to Jamaica, wanted to see people across the islands recruiting for Benedict College in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And um, they asked me to be the liaison for her when she came to my school. And talking to her, walking with her, I um, we're just talking about everything we're doing. And she asked if I ever thought about taking the SATs. Told her I actually did. and. Um, took it already, and she asked me my score, told her my score, and she's like, hey, you know, I'll, you can get a full academic scholarship been at Benedict College. So I asked her, what do you mean? And um, mind you, Spanish Town is not the most affluent part of Jamaica. At one point in time, it was the number seven murder capital in the world. So it's mm-hmm. a fairly dangerous place. It's, you know, you get a chance to go through and grow in Jamaica, but there's not that many opportunities available to you. And, um, And when I asked her, she's like, no, I can offer you a full scholarship. I literally took off running. I ran from my high school over a mile home at top speed. Um, Mm -hmm. Didn't stop to catch a breath. I was just sprinting home and told my mother. And she was so excited. And um, I was gonna go to the University of the West Indies, had decent enough grades to get there. But she was like, yeah, you're going to Benedict College. So never really been to South Carolina, knew nothing of it, but Mm -hmm. um, to get a chance to have your academics paid for, room and board paid for, um, you can figure out food later.
1: Um, <laughs> that was my, that was a gift, and um, we took it. Wow, I love that. That's a, that's a seminal moment, and uh, we should have timed you in that one mile. You know, see if uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> how fast are you? You might really? have made the Olympic team. In, yeah, in I think the, that was the uh, fastest I've ever run in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that just shows how exciting it was. So you're at Benedict College. Um, why did you choose physics? I obviously you have mathematical inclination why physics and what were you know was there any seminal experience there that was helped helped you kind of shape your career and your your perspective on things
2: so what was interesting in physics is that um, in the we call it fourth form but it was almost like the tenth grade of um, high school I failed physics like miserably and um, I was always good at math my dad had left and um, Close to that time, I just was searching for my path. So I was hanging with some of the kids in my class that really weren't paying attention to school. I wasn't paying attention to school. I was skipping classes all the time. And that year, my average for all my classes was 44. Um, My mother was so disappointed with me. And she, you know, she's a single mom trying to raise us. And um, yeah, I wasn't really acting the way that I should have. And she did something that was fairly unique. She, she said to me, is this the best you can do? And um, I knew I was disappointing her, and I didn't really answer. And then she followed up and said, well, if this is the best you can do, I'm proud of you. No, I know that wasn't good. I know I didn't do well, but I knew that even in my failure, she was proud of me. So that night I couldn't sleep and that night I decided, well, let's figure out what my best is. And I decided to do my best from there. And that was a pivotal moment because um, I did fail physics. I went on to, to pass uh, math a year earlier with distinction. I passed all my, my classes and I kept on just getting better and better getting momentum. So when I came to America, I did the advanced courses in accounting, economics, and math and did fairly well in all three of those. And when I came to Benedict College, I realized that I wouldn't learn anything in accounting that I didn't know already before, like, my second semester junior year. So I took on something that was hard, and I failed. So I went and did physics. And I was just like, I didn't pass this. I wasn't good at this. And I knew I was always good at numbers, but I was just slacking off in school. And because I had so low grades, I didn't get the chance to take it when I was in Jamaica because I'd failed a lot of it pretty miserably. So I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. And um, yeah, I was proud. I graduated summa cum laude with a 4.0 GPA um, in physics. And at 3.94 overall, um, I couldn't really do art appreciation because I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> that. That was my gift.
1: That, that was the stumble. That was the Achilles heel Yes. Right there. 3.94 is nothing to, you know, be too upset about. It's amazing that your mother, instead of scolding you, said, I'm pr- I'm if it's of, truly yeah. what you've done, if you've truly done well, then you did an internal soul searching and answered the question for yourself.
2: Yeah, because right? I was expecting the scolding. I was expecting the chastising, but I never got anything of that. I got, she's proud of me. And I was, that just made me think, if she's proud of you, whatever you do, as long as you do your best, it's up to you to go figure out what that is. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, I decided to do from there
1: on. Yeah. And, and obviously, your father's uh, departure had a bit of an effect too. And, you know, yeah. in retrospect, that, that was a curveball, but, but you rallied. And your mother took a very important role in your life, obviously, probably multiple roles. She had. Yes. 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 So, physics, so you graduate with a physics degree 4.0, not too shabby, plus played some <laughs> soccer or football, as they would probably say in Jamaica. Yes, right. definitely football. But uh, here in the United States, we say soccer. What, what drove you to go to the Ohio State for your MBA? Again, grace. I, um,
2: so my uncle, my mother's little brother, he was more like a father figure to me, and he always wanted to be a, me to be an engineer. So after physics, um, I took the GMAT and GRE to try to get into this special program at um, MIT, which is a master's in systems engineering. I ended up getting in, and um, you know, he was super proud of me. And after getting the acceptance letter, we were doing tours of universities for um, the seniors in my undergrad. And at the time, I was the president of the Honor Students Association, so I was leading these tours. So we went to Ohio State, and um, ever since growing up, I always wanted to do business. I always wanted to figure out how businesses work. Um, And when I came to America, I decided I needed to learn that because I was working in my family's grocery store, so I knew how to work in business and try to figure it out, but I wanted to understand how the American system operated. And um, I wanted to do my MBA as my long-term goal, but I figured I had to go do my master's, go work for a few years before I can get into an MBA program. So I had the unique chance on that tour to actually sit in a class at Ohio State and see what they were doing in the class. So I jumped on it. So I was sitting at the back of the MBA classroom, um, watching what they were doing. And then this wonderful lady was sitting beside me, and we had a, a great conversation. And she kept on asking me questions after question. And I'm like, okay, this lady is a little bit, um, you know, she's a little bit intrusive, right? She's asking <laughs> me all these questions. But, you know, I enjoyed it, and I was just paying attention to the class. And then eventually she's saying, why are you here? So I told her, hey, I eventually I want to get my MBA. I know I can't get in now. I was 22 at the time. And, um, but I wanted to see what it is so I can actually visualize it and come back and do it later when I get a chance. And she asked me if I ever took the GMAT. And I took it because I wanted to go through this unique program at MIT that needed both. Because mm-hmm. normally for a master's, you only need a GRE. And... Um, So then she said, well, you know, have you ever thought about paying for an MBA program? Like, I'm an international student, I'm broke, right? Um, (laughs) I came to America with $150 and I'm still broke. Um, So yeah, I can't pay for it. So she came back to me and said, well, what if we tell her we can give you an offer to come here? And um, so I asked her if she was serious. Turns out she was in admissions at Ohio State. In the MBA program, there it is, and um, she gave me an offer. And on top of that, they gave me an apartment for two years for free, amazing, and gave me um, a job where I could get a stipend for five hundred dollars a month, which was enough for a college student to live on. Because you know, I
1: was used to being broke. That was that was high living right there. (laughs) (laughs) Five hundred bucks in a free apartment. Yes, man, that's that's top ten percent when you're in college. It seems like. So the Ohio State finance and strategy, why did you choose those areas of emphasis? So when I first got to
2: Ohio State there was this thing called a consulting boot camp that before we even started class they had um, these boot camps where you could learn about different, um, different opportunities for work after and they had one person from BCG there um, who was a friend of the university who was teaching the class. So I showed up, I sat through it, and I was very fascinated by um, consulting because what it was able to do is give me a chance to step into different industries, to learn how um, these companies worked, to work with high-level executives in these industries, and to try to give them you know, advice, which I didn't really think I was worthy of doing, but also learn a structure to... Um, disseminate information to them to dissect the problems they were having and to create robust mm-hmm. um, solutions so I was very excited about that and at that point in time I decided I was gonna go to BCG uh, my internship before I even started school I was like I'm gonna go there
1: Wow okay
2: interestingly enough they did recruit at the Ohio State um, so <laughs> that was just the one minor hurdle and I had to learn case interviewing so I started taking books and studying mm-hmm. then Um, And I started to look at different um, majors that would be beneficial if you want to learn how a business operates. So strategy was one, Mm -hmm. and finance was the other. To learn how to manage the the books in a business and to learn how to develop um, unique strategies that are tailored to that organization and eventually implement it.
1: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So so how did you get on with BCG if they didn't interview and come on campus? So office?
2: I um, studied a bunch of case interviews. I asked professors to help me with case interviewing when I could. Um, I bought all the books I could and I reached out to them and that specific person and um, tried to get um, on their list of interviews. So I did and actually eventually got a summer internship there in BCG Chicago.
1: Wow. So that shows a lot of initiative. A lot of times kids, all of us will park it and just versus really going aggressively for what you want, having a vision for it. So that's that's impressive. That's a good story.
0: Well, that also shows the power of leveraging your network. Right. You didn't forget about that man at BCG.
1: Yes. So he
2: um, you know, the Bible said, write the vision and make it plain so that they may run their read. Right. Um, My vision was to go learn consulting. And he was my vision, right? He's Mm -hmm. a person that did it. Mm -hmm. And my goal was to try to be like him. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember, I'm coming from somewhere that's not really affluent in spanish on Jamaica. So I'm in a developing country. And um, these are all things that are all new to me. I didn't know what someone operating at that level would be like. I didn't know what they made. I just knew I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. So I... um, yeah, approached him with that sense of humility, but that desire to go after. That's what I want to do, so I'm going to try to learn from you. So, you know, he may have thought I was a pest because I kept on calling him and emailing him and stuff, um, trying to help him to even give me case prep, but he realized I was I was serious. Mm-hmm. Um, funny enough, when I got there, I, had a, I thought I had a decent enough summer, um, and at the end, I was the only one that didn't get an offer. Oh, no. So, you know, they a pride come before the fall. I'm like, I'm getting into BCG. They don't recruit here. I was feeling myself so much and telling everybody ahead of time. And when I came back with an offer with my tail between my legs, um, that was a, a humbling experience. And mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out why, because I thought I did well. I got good feedback, and then I didn't. And what I realized is that sometimes people may not be as willing to give you the real feedback that you should have gotten, or people may not have been willing to be the advocate for you maybe because you don't look like them, maybe because you don't act like them, um, you know, my communication style wasn't like theirs, my interests wasn't like theirs. There are things that I look back now and think I could have done better while I was there, but I didn't have the mentorship or the people in my network who've been there before mm-hmm. to tell me, you know, Rich, you, you, you can't do that, right? If everybody's staying yeah. in a certain, certain area in Chicago, you may want to stay there, but I stayed somewhere in, on the south side because it was cheaper because I was trying to save money. So I wasn't able to do some of the things with them in the evening, right? You know, mm-hmm. you learn things over time, and you realize that you need a network to be able to build some of these opportunities.
1: I think that's a, a, just parking on that for one second. Yes. I, that's It's brilliant. You know, we in our last book, we talked about if you're not getting feedback, it's not because there's nothing you can't improve. They're just not telling you. Yes. We've definitely got and generally people don't give us difficult feedback. It's tough to do so. So how do we solicit? Because that's a gift, you know. we have blind spots and unless someone tells them where they are, we're gonna really be frustrated at times.
2: Yeah, you have to truly seek out feedback and it's funny, um, I didn't realize this until later on that you actually have to make someone be comfortable to give you real feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Despite it's their responsibility to give you feedback, sometimes people may not be comfortable enough with you for whatever reasons they are to really give you authentic feedback. They feel it, they experience it, they're gonna share that with others when it's time for them to communicate it, but they may not communicate it with you. Mm-hmm. So it's only you to create that atmosphere to be able to get that. Um, so you don't only have to solicit it, you have to create the atmosphere to get the authentic feedback.
1: I think it's such a brilliant insight that I know has saved careers when when executives have really internalized that learning. So I love that idea of not only soliciting it, but making it really comfortable.
0: Well, and in addition to that, I think from an individual's standpoint, it's making sure that individuals ask for that feedback because sometimes they don't. We don't. Right.
1: That's right. It's tough, but it's necessary. It's absolutely. All right. So BCG. Great. Thank you for sharing that because we all have those confusing times in our life and those things that in retrospect hurt us at the time but probably were good we didn't get. That yes. might be what BCG was for you. Um, so you ended up on McKinsey. Give us that story. How'd that happen? So after licking my wounds and going through the
2: process, mm-hmm. I. Um, it's funny, um, you have two reactions, right? So one reaction is, man, this consulting thing isn't for me, which I felt initially. And the second reaction is like, Okay, screw it. If if BCG don't want me, I'm going to go to the only one that's better than BCG. I'm going to go after McKinsey. <laughs> I chose the latter. Said, there you go. So, I decided I was going to go after McKinsey and I kept on um I kept on doubling down on case interviewing, reaching out to different people. Um, there was a unique situation where they came to Ohio State some members from McKinsey Cleveland. Um connected with them one of my mentors to this day, uh, Mike Anders, he was one of the interviewers and a um, you know, fantastic guy. He helped me through the process. And then when I got through the process, um, it's a uniqueness of McKinsey that I learned over time. So if you're good at everything and great at nothing, you never get hired, or if you get hired, you get fired because you were a mishire. So McKinsey looks for um, what they call distinctiveness. So you have to be great at something. And their approach to it is that, Uh, they can put together fantastic teams, and they always work in a team. And you go through a lot of work to learn about building um, team dynamics and working with your peers. But they want to find people who are distinctive in specific areas and put them together that's tailored to the client's needs. And mine was analytics and problem solving. So they, after going through the process, going through the interviews and working through the whole process, they hired me. One of the things they said was, where you don't think you can be an associate because you didn't go through the standard path. You went straight to business school from an undergrad. You didn't have the years of work experience, which is interesting because I worked in my family store for years, right? Uh, but I didn't have the standard years of work experience. So we're like, we're gonna hire you as a business analyst, which is where a undergrad will go into. And you'll have the chance to prove that you can be an associate Yeah. So it was another path of, of humility, which is, um, even though I can get in, I had my MBA, but I was in the class with all the business analysts, and they normally work two years, then go on to get the MBA, then need to come back and associate. I was like, man, this, this kinda sucks. Um, do I still want it to go or not? And um, my long-term goal was I still wanted to learn how businesses work. I still wanted to learn how we can make things stick, and they were the number one consulting firm in the world, so I was gonna make the sacrifice and go. Um, so I went. I um, I learned a lot over time. I eventually transitioned from business analyst directly to associate, and by the end, I was I was you know in the upper echelon of my associate class before I left.
1: That's impressive. And, and again, um, yes. you know the resilience that you showed. And, and I'm seeing a couple of themes here. There's always patterns, right? When as you talk about grace, where there was an individual at an opportune time who you engaged with, who gave you a chance. Yes. Two, then you would see some things, right? You had a vision and you see some things with dogged determinism where other people could have taken offense, got mad, it derailed them. Uh, it just made you more determined, which is great lessons as far as success. Yeah.
0: And grit, right?
2: A lot yes. of grit. I think a lot of people believe success is absence of failure or challenges. Mm. And, um, you know, I was to Ernest Nightingale the other day and um, – His definition of success I thought is interesting is is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. So you have an ideal, you have a a desire a goal, and if you can progressively get better and get closer towards it, you are already a success. So despite having challenges, I wanted to learn how businesses tick, how businesses work. And that's my ideal. Um, I may have wanted to get in as an associate at McKinsey, but I got in as a business analyst. Irrespective, I got into a consulting company where I can go learn. Um, I wanted to learn about consulting and I got an internship and got rejected. Um, But I still got an internship and I still started to see what behind the curtains looked like. And I can either stop or I can say, hey, I'm gonna keep on going towards it. And so that's my approach, which is that um, I've come to learn over time that challenges are not only um, going to be there, but they're appropriate to help you to learn. Mm-hmm. So if I can still look at it as I'm progressively moving towards my goal, I'm already a success.
1: I'll tell you what, and for any of those listeners who don't know who Earl Nightingale is, who you just quoted, great stuff, classic for sure. I, it's impressive that you're listening to him. So that's neat stuff. Well, so keep keep us moving here. So you're at McKinsey, you you elevate, you you have some promotions at McKinsey and you're in some interesting bigger roles. Then you went internal with Dean Foods, I believe. Yes. Tell us how that happened. So
2: um, I was working on the project with Dean Foods, and I was getting to the stage at McKinsey where you move from an analyst to an engagement manager, which is you start to manage your teams, and um, that's the first step on the path to partnership. Or you can um, step out and move into one of the clients. And McKinsey have these unique um, approaches, they call it the up or out policy. You're either moving up or you're moving out. There's no stagnation. And um, I was working with Dean Foods. I was learning a lot. I was actually having a greater impact on crafting the strategy that we were trying to implement. And they reached out to me. One of the uh, members there um, reached out to me and said, hey, you know, you're one of the few people that actually understand their pricing. And I would love for you to come join us and implement the strategy you were working on. And that was a unique time because I felt like I've been at McKinsey enough to learn you know, problem solving, how they approach um, analytics and thinking and building um, client teams. And I could either move towards going more towards partnership at McKinsey or I could continue down my path, which is to learn how businesses operate. Mm-hmm. And that was a chance to step from the place of creating strategies to implementing strategies. And the core thing I wanted to learn is what make a strategy not work. Uh, so most people were trying to go to figure out what made it work. I was trying to figure out what made it fail. And because um, my, my thought process is that I'm around some of the smartest people in the world, and they create these fantastic strategies. And what would cause it not to create the impact that we thought it would? Mm-hmm. And um, my biggest realization was people. And um, when I decided to leave, I didn't realize how quickly I was going to figure out a strategy would not work. So the person that recruited me, um, that brought me on, that hired me, left before the, I showed up. He left the day before I showed up. Oh, no.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay.
2: <laughs> he was recruiting his replacement. I never realized that. I was looking to go work with him, and he had took an offer to go somewhere else. And when he um, when he left... I showed up the first day, and I was asking where it was, and everybody was being cagey. Um, he left to go to Borden. And um, I was like, so where is where's the person I'm supposed to work with, the person I'm supposed to report to? And by the end of the day, they put me in a room. I was trying to get some of these HR things, and then eventually came to me and was like, yeah, he's not here anymore. I'm like, what? I just spoke to him. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't let you know either. He, just, he didn't. No. He couldn't. Um, so... Yeah. They um I had the chance and I spoke to the head of the Dallas office and they're like, Hey, you can come back. Um we'll be happy to have you and I had to go through some soul searches and then they realized that that is why I went to learn what made it not work. So mm-hmm. it was me to see it through. So I went through that process and um and also I was supposed to start as a director and this may sound familiar. Um they're like, Yeah, well um we can't do that. We're gonna make you a senior manager when you came in. Uh, despite that was it up to like the last minute um and i didn't they had to go through the process of do i want to accept that process or not which i did um and you know went through that we went through a couple changes while they were figuring out the project um eventually we solved it and um started to create an impact that we intended to and then two years later um Guess who came calling the same guy that recruited me to, to <laughs> dean he was like hey am i born uh, we're working on some of the similar things and i would love for you to come help us i was like hell no i'm not coming and, um, but i you know he was really he was a really nice guy I, I loved him i still love him to this day and um we talked about you know what i could do to help him and i told him i wasn't really at that stage anymore because i was learning so much already and then um, I spoke to the head of Supply Chain for Borden at the time as well, and they learned about a lot of my experience at McKinsey because mm-hmm. I was in the operations practice. I was in deep supply chain work. Mm-hmm. So they brought me on to be the director of supply chain planning to help build a supply chain planning function for Borden, mm-hmm. but also help with that deer sourcing and deer analytics mm-hmm. process. And one of the interesting things that happened at, at Dean as well is that Dean was going through some turmoil There, They were going through a lot of um, they went through a couple of rounds of layoffs um there were some challenges there and i had one mentor that came in just before i left and he said something to me that i've never forgotten um his name is shay braun and um he he, we were talking one day and we're just going through the next round of layoffs and everybody was you know people get distracted Mm -hmm. people are talking whispering everybody's wondering where they are and he saw me working And he'd say, you know, let me talk to you. And we were talking, and at the time, I was supposed to be a director at Dean. I started as a senior manager, didn't really have a clear path to it, and um, I was doing everything I needed to do, plus some. Because I always look at the person next to me, and I was just like, if I can learn what they're doing, that'll be better. And um, he mentioned to me that in the time of turmoil is your biggest opportunity for growth. In a standard organization, what happens is that people are in the role that you want to be in. So to be able to get to the role, they either have to matriculate to another role or leave the company. General speaking, or the only other part they'll do is they'll create a new role for you. But a lot of times companies are not in the path of doing that. So the only way you can make big leaps is actually when a company is going through turmoil. So that's your biggest opportunity. most, most people think about it as your biggest time of challenge. And he said, If you can keep on doing what you're doing and actually double down, the leaders in the organization are looking at the organization and sometimes they haven't made the decision or even if they have made the decision to who they want to move up or not, they're looking at how everybody responds to the times of turmoil. And the people who are actually differentiating themselves tend to be the ones that get the opportunities. And it's like if you can keep on doing this and even do more, you'll be able to grow. And um, I've always kept that because it was so counterintuitive. And being in leadership um, and leading organizations through change as well, I could actually see his rationale for that. Mm -hmm. Is that you're looking at who you can depend on going forward in this next phase of the company's career. And you have to figure out who that person is. And a lot of times you may have an initial hypothesis of who you want, but the reaction to the challenges could create an opportunity for you to look at somebody else who wasn't even on your radar.
1: Wow. So he really framed it for you in some very productive way. And and I think there's some real wisdom in what you just shared. And hopefully our listeners hear that too.
0: Yeah, I I love the part of the counterintuitive, right? So I, I think you're absolutely right. In times of turmoil, most people will, you know, just turn away or give up. And you saw the opportunity. I love that golden nugget.
1: Yeah, it's a terrific one. It really is. So you got recruited by the same fella over to Borden. Yes. And just as a little context, Dean Foods is the biggest milk producer in the dairy world, I yes. think, five, four or five times or yes. something like that. So they're a big player. Borden's a significant player, but they've gone through some changes too. So kind of give us a cliff notes on Borden.
2: So when I got to Borden, I think we were uh, maybe th- – 19 manufacturing facilities, um, multi-billion dollar operation. And I joined Borden as a director of supply chain planning. Um, eventually, I moved into um, a vice president role in, in procurement, running the dairy procurement. Um, then moved into the C-suite as the chief procurement officer and, and was leading um, some of the M&A um, work for them as well and it was interesting actually I had had one stint Highland Capital had this hedge fund and a private equity group and they recruited me to come in and help on their portfolio operations so I was working in private equity for a bit before Borden uh, went through a sale and got bought by a bigger private equity group out of DC Acon Investments and they recruited me to come back and help to lead Borden through his next phase of growth so I, um, I spent less than a year at Highland because I got brought back in the board, and that's when I stepped in as um, a part of the C-suite. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, that was, I think it was like nine years since I left uh, McKinsey to being in the C-suite, running you know, over a billion dollars in production. Yeah, that's a huge
1: role, by yes. the way, especially yes. procurement in, in the dairy industry where pricing is in the commodity. I mean, it's so complex. Yes. It, there's It's just all, its its own unique animal when it comes to pricing in ways that I don't think, maybe oil and gas are similar, maybe. Yes. But the, after that, I don't think there's anything near as challenging as pricing in, the, in those industries.
2: Yeah, it, it's been the most challenging industry I've worked in. It was interesting. I've done stints in healthcare, high tech, telecom. I did postmortem integration, um, financial services, and Deere is by far the most complex.
1: Yeah, so it's not just any C-suite role. It's procurement, pricing, all of those issues that are very difficult at at scale. Yes, at scale in a very dynamic, difficult industry to say the least, under different ownership structures and a lot yes. of other noise. Uh, man, I mean, what a, what a big and demanding position. How ready did you feel for it? And kind of, you know, any key learnings from being in the C-suite in mm-hmm. that kind of environment? So,
2: I didn't feel as ready as I would like to be. Um, part of it is, is the pace of change. Um, but also part of it is, is you have different, um, platforms you can stand on. So a lot of people would stand on a platform of, I had 20 years of experience, 30 years of experience. Um, I never had that cause I moved through it so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so you also have experience of building on a platform of a content expertise, right? So can you be the best at this, right? From a content standpoint or... Do you have the years of experience to see everything? And my approach to things was, I was never gonna win the experience battle. So I was gonna be humble and ask a bunch of questions to people who had the experience. And I'm gonna try to glean every single thing I can. But what I can be is the best at the content. Um, So I went fairly deep in the analytics. I I lean into my strength and make sure that I was the best at that. So that was what gave me comfort when I got to the C-suite. So I'm like, everybody else is much older than me, and I'm never going to win the experience battle with any of you. But what I can do is make sure that you understand that I am the best at this, and I'll um, I'll provide my expertise to the rest of the organization based on that platform. And I'll um, learn from everybody else in the room and just be a sponge to try to gain as much as I can from every single interaction.
1: I love it. So the yeah. humility and also yeah. that lesson maybe from McKinsey is what distinguishes you. Right? Yes. That kind of what's – I'm not a jack of all trades. I'm going to dive deep and very be very distinguished and unique in one. And maybe you brought that forward a little bit into the C-suite, which yes. is interesting. That's yes. cool. Well, not easy. And, of course, they had a lot of ownership changes and structural changes. And there's a back and forth like you shared. Then you've made now this newest pivot, right? Tell us about that. I mean, the island spot and then a broader set of brands within the restaurant and hospitality industry. So what's interesting is I
2: got into restaurants um, by some would say happenstance. Um, I would say grace. So I was at McKinsey. It was my birthday. We were serving Dean, and the team wanted to give me a a treat to the Timotill, one of the best Jamaican restaurants, um, by ranking. And the experience was um, lacking. Maybe. <laughs> That's <nice laughs> it's what I'm not what you expected. You were a little being disappointed. Being from Jamaica, perhaps. <laughs> and, and traveling around, living in a, an expense account. So we traveled and ate at some of the best restaurants in the world. And that wasn't the experience I had. The food was good, um, service atmosphere wasn't as good. And so I left and said, This can't be the best. So I started to search. So as I traveled, I kept on searching. I was like, I didn't really see that in Dallas and in a broader audience. So there's some real good ones in different cities, but there wasn't a brand that you could say is is the gold standard. Um, that's for my casual dining sit-down restaurant that I could say, people have done it before in you know Mexican, Mediterranean, mm-hmm. Italian. You, know, you have all these different things. I just couldn't find one for Jamaican. Um, so I decided I was gonna do something about it. And so I found a partner who was a chef or cook, and I provided the funding. We opened a store, um, and then I learned the difference between um, operating the c C-suite and operating as an entrepreneur. Yes. <laughs> That's very
1: different.
0: Elaborate, Richard. <laughs> different. We
2: could exchange notes on that one. That was, yeah. Yeah, so I was still, like, going after I left McKinsey and I decided to start it when I was at Dean. Um, it was a challenge. Um, you have challenges, and, you know, people go to restaurants for the experience they already have. And if it's a good experience, they'll keep on coming back they don't want better or worse right they want repeatability and um, having the confidence to know that they can expect a good experience from this and to do that you need systems you need processes and sometimes starting off with um, chefs they're creative um, <laughs> but not quite the system and process people right <laughs> so that led to some you know some issues some challenges and within the first year of um of the store, we actually closed. Mm-hmm. Um, we so we failed, pretty much. We closed the store. Some partnership fighting, and, and the interesting thing is that um, I proposed to my wife in that store. And right after the proposing, um, all the partnerships fights starting, and her law firm represented me um, in this whole battle. So I. I'm still working in it. I've been married for 11 years now. I'm still hoping that she'll forgive me for her <laughs> <laughs> engagement period. Well, but you still period. got married even after yes. fine. But, um, yeah, that was a challenge. And, uh, you know, you learn the challenges in, in entrepreneurship and business. And um, we got through it. And I had to look at myself and say, you know, what was I trying to do here? Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to change the way people experience Jamaican food. So I decided to reopen it. I had another chef that didn't work out, and then I did what any self-respecting person would do. I went to my mama, and, <laughs> and I asked her, I was "Like, mom, you make all these great food in Jamaica. Can you come help me?" Um, and I got a French-trained chef to work with her and take her recipes and like move from being in a home to restaurant scale, and that was a, a funny ordeal. For she's, you know, cooking and trying to taste something and then turn her around to go get some more spices to throw in the pot. And he's trying to catch the spice before it goes in <laughs> so he can actually measure it and then put it back in the pot. And it was this whole iterative process to be able to get to building the recipes that we have in the island spot today. But it was trying to go back and start over and say, OK, what did I learn? What didn't go well and how can I try to improve it?
1: That is, that's a cool story, by oh, the way. I, I guarantee your mom was not working for you. You work for your mom at you know, oh, that Oh, yes. yes. That's always good. doesn't so, matter what the titles are. That's how it is.
2: I'll tell you something funny. We, we used to have these you know, somewhat monthly staff meetings where I'm you know, sitting everybody down and trying to talk to them about what I need to do. And my mother, um, being Jamaica used to show up um, late sometimes. And I'm like, okay, I can't have my mother being... Um, Separately, you and know, I have to talk to her just like I'm talking to everybody. And I made the mistake of in the staff meeting, it's like, okay, mom, I need you to show up on time. And I said it may have one, I may have said it one time too many. And she just like, Richie, I'm your mom. And that was the end of it. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I could have coached you up on that one. I, I turned and started <laughs> talking to the rest of my staff. It's like, okay, that, that you, you kind of crossed the line on that one.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, And so, so the island spot, which is a cool concept. I've been to it. Yes. We Good have food. been to it and it's great. Enjoyed it with Thank a you. common friend took us there. We enjoyed it immensely. And I think it has a lot of potential. But then if that isn't enough, you thought, hey, I'm going to really expand my footprint. So tell us more about kind of this venture into restaurants and hospitality.
2: So after leaving Borden, I um, actually left in the middle of the pandemic in July. I had the same opportunity in front of me. Right, which was to, despite us being in a pandemic and it being challenged for the restaurant industry, you can either go lean in or not. And I wanted to go create the vision. I felt like um, BCG, McKinsey, Business School, Dean, Borden were all training grounds for me. And now it's the time to go try to build my, my company. And um, stepping into my company then in a the pandemic, it was a challenging time. And the intent was to try to lead the company through the process and also try to figure out how to build a vision. So my vision, and the interesting thing about my vision, my vision came in the depths of my failure. So when we were going through the challenges and going through the battles and going through everything that we were facing at the island spot with my, my ex-partner, um, we had a situation where I started to search the Bible for answers. And it kept on coming to this scripture, Haggai 2, and more specifically, Haggai 2 9. And what it says is that um the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, and in this house I'll grant peace, says the Lord Almighty. And before that he even said the silver is mine and the gold is mine. Which was interesting because I was broke at the time. I um I was having a failing company, and it kept on saying the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And um before that, early in Haggai 2 is like you know, be strong and work for I'm with you. This is what I covenanted with you, and it came out of Egypt, my spirit remains among you, do not fear. And it was teaching me, despite what I was seeing in front of me, it was saying the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And the former house was what I had in front of me. The present house was what he was promising me. And it took between that and when, like I just had my new corporate headquarters with the present house on it um, last week, that took 12 years. And it was 12 years of growth, of development. Um, so when I stepped away from Borden, I was going to go build the person house. And to me, the person house was always a place that we can have, I call it, we develop culturally craveable brands. It was creating brands that um, meet our palettes but have a broader um, appeal. It's creating brands that give you an authentic sense of culture, of belonging, of welcoming, And we wanted to share that with Jamaican food. We wanted to dive even deeper in that and create the Alice Spot Villas in Jamaica so you can get a a fully immersive um, experience in Jamaica. And we're launching that later this year. And then it's also a platform that we can actually build other brands on. Um, I always wanted to learn how businesses work. I not only created a strategy and worked through strategies at Borden and Dean, I took the time to go to you know, Highland Capitals, um, Next Bank Capital Advisors, and learn about how private equity works. Um, Because my goal was to create a platform that we can acquire brands, we can build brands, we can develop them. And that's what I'm building. So we did our first acquisition um, late last year, where I just announced it the other day, where we acquired the Boeing that is House of Smoke brand. and you know I'm excited because we get to infuse life into a, a staple, of the DFW market and Greater Texas market, and you know bring back that brand to its former glory, and we intend to do that to other brands as well. But we're all looking for brands with a cultural bend. Like when I first got to Bowden, that is my wife took me there in I think 2009 when we were dating, and I was fascinated by all the art on the wall. Most people don't realize it; they think of it as a restaurant, uh, but it was. Designed after low country barbecue fields, if you look at all the art, you'll see a ton of art from um, blues, of jazz from New Orleans. That was what the owner intended to have in it, and you know I'm excited to be able to bring that out, bring it out to the fullest. You know, yes, we want to have the flavorful, authentic food, but we also want to show you the, you know, more the rich, the more richness that comes with a truly authentic cultural experience. Um, that's what we're doing so we're doing it in island spot we're doing it in boat. That is now we'll do it in other brands as well
1: great so uh, wow man there's so much in there just uh, i wouldn't even try to unpack it i what i love is the spiritual component yes. of it uh, what i find is visionaries people who really build something new create things that at scale have a deeper purpose and meaning beyond just making money it's yes. always it's always, always true if there's one metaphysical truth. It's that. And I heard that with you. I mean, it's not just what you said, but how you said it. A lot of emotion, very, very craveable vision, not just culturally craveable food, which is kind of cool. Thanks. So thanks for showing that. I I know you're going to be successful. I just feel it.
0: Oh, absolutely. I know it. You know, Richard, you've had a tremendous journey and appreciate you sharing the, the good and the bad that we all experience. What would you say now, you know, what do you love the most about what you do? And then also what's the least thing that you enjoy about what you do?
2: I love um, the people aspect of what I do. I love trying to help to grow my staff and to see the development of staff. Like one of the things in hospitality is you have some people who are looking at it as a career, some people who look at it as a, a stint, and some people are looking at it as a second chance. And being able to see the people, especially ones that come as a second chance, they grow through this process. They get a chance to turn around their um, lives, create stability, and start to build again. You know that's the the most enriching thing for me. And then um, the customers as well. You know I I call it the sway in the island spot. So how I know when we're doing something right is when a guest sits down. Um, they have a Good crafted cocktail in front of them. They're getting some food, their reggae music is flowing in the background, and they're unintentionally swaying. At that point in time, I know they've stopped thinking about where they are and start to being immersed in the experience. And anytime I can see that sway when that mm-hmm. reggae music is there you have that, that drink in your hand, I was like, okay, no, we've achieved it. And that's, that's really what I look for when I get there. So, you know, that is what enriches me the most in being um, in hospitality. And to to um, go back to your next question is like, what's the biggest challenge as well for me? It's starting over and learning again. It's like I am no, you know, I've gotten to the C-suite of a you know, multi-billion-dollar company, and and no, starting over from scratch again. So I'm learning entrepreneurship. I'm learning building a corporation. I'm learning um, building the you know the nuances of creating an enduring organization, right? So I've worked in many of them but now I'm building my own. And, and that's, that's interesting. So there are things I'm gonna get wrong, but I'm also really looking forward to the path of you know, building that. You know, my goal is the present house will be ran by my daughters. And if that's happening, I know I've, I've done it right.
1: Yeah, that's true. And your daughters are still not even 10 yet, right? So they're, no, Yeah,
2: they're two, four, and six, I got a while to go.
1: Now you got a while, but there's family legacy, which makes it even more meaningful. And you know that continuity of vision is fantastic. Uh, final question before we let you get out of here, right? Yes. Uh, great story, great set of learnings, showing a lot of grit, resilience, bounce back, um, and a, a thirst to learn, not just earn, but learn. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and when you learn, earning comes, and you've really manifested that. And you're still relatively young in your career, so there's a lot of, lot of runway to go. But what, you, what would you, knowing our audience, that they're probably a little earlier in their career, trying to figure it out at some level, What pieces of advice would you give them that you've learned and really come to believe in that you'd want them to take away?
2: So I have a a few. So one is to embrace the process of learning. I think a lot of times we may want to get to the end point of being a guru or um, an expert. The challenge of being an expert is that you no longer create the path or the ability for somebody to teach you anything. Um, so I've always been one to embrace the process of learning. I'm enjoying learning how to build an enduring organization right now. Um, so that's one. The second thing I would say is that, you know, when I start to think about growing in my career, the principles I've used is I want it to be greater than the role that I'm in. So I wanted to get clear understanding of the role that I'm in. I wanted to be fully efficient, if not expert at the role I'm in. And then I wanted to start looking at the next role above me and started to learn those skill sets. And when I've proven myself as greater than a rollerman, and what I mean greater than is that you have a track record of success in delivering on what um, is required of you. And then you also have the experience of doing some of the things that are beyond what is required of you. Then, and only then, you want to make your desires of growth and expansion known, right? So mm. don't expect people to come to you. You know, if you're overperforming in a role, then they'll be happy to have you. But if you're overperforming in a role and then you make a desire role known for a more expansive role, then they'll be forced to the decision. Um, you can either provide this opportunity for this person within the organization or are they gonna go somewhere else and get that opportunity. But you clearly see that they are performing well, they're performing greater than their role. And when you're deciding what role you want next, I've always been a proponent of um, not only operating as a part but looking the part and acting the part. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you, if you want to be a manager, make sure that you, you dress like a manager, you present yourself like a manager It's hard for someone to look at you as a manager and show up as an analyst, right? So you want to be at that stage um, in performance and presentation. And then once you've done that, you've proven yourself worthy, you've made the desire, um, you have the conversation in a path of growth. And what I mean by that is that when you have the conversation you say, hey, um, this is what I've done, this is what I'm looking to do. Help me to understand what else can I show to make you feel comfortable to move me into that role.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's
2: not like, hey, I need a raise or I need this. It's like, no, I'm still looking to grow. Um, help me to understand what else can I prove to you. And that changes the conversation. It changes the dynamic with the person you're, you're talking to because it it moves them to a path where it's not you against them, but you're on the same side of the table. And they're helping you to grow. And along the path, you'll be able to keep on building the skill sets and growing and then you both will see once you're checking in for feedback and you know as i said earlier you're creating the atmosphere that can get authentic feedback you both will see when you are ready for the role and then you can have a different type of conversation like okay so you know how can we think about this transition what can make it best for me and you to go through this transition so you always want to make it a collaborative process as you're younger in your career and trying to grow of how to develop um, and once you make that process collaborative with the people you're working with, they'll realize that, you know, you are somebody that is expansive, and you'll naturally get put in a position that you can either grow in that role within your organization, or you can grow it outside, but you still are going to grow.
1: I love it, And Instead of saying, this is what I want, you say, you know, show, exhibit your capability you're worth right claim and it
0: that's what i hear Just claim, claim it, it and
1: do mm. it work it and then have the conversation kind of earn the right at that point point. And, yes. and you look the part you're operating the part and and instead of saying i want a raise it's like i want to continue to grow that's a different conversation it is that frames it in a way that's beneficial for everybody and is the right premise and and that's one of the key themes i heard from you is learn i'm, I'm motivated by learning and the earn will happen after the learn it will it's yeah. a natural occurrence yeah yeah, that's. I think you're absolutely right. That's what I found to be true too. So
0: I agree. Great, great words of wisdom, Richard. Well, Appreciate
1: it. Richard, Thank you excellent. Thank you for having uh, coming into the studio and being with us here. It's uh, a great set of stories, and I know a lot of our listeners will get a lot from this. And uh, we look forward to going to Bone Daddy's Smokehouse.
0: Island okay.
1: spot, the island and spot, Jamaica. <laughs> yes. and Jamaica. Yes, and Jamaican village. I, you know, as this continues, we're going to have to continue. Maybe we'll have you back here in a few years as you have even more learnings and more expanse to share with us. That sounds good. Thank you for the opportunity as well. Thanks, Thank my you. friend. Have a good one.